Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining tonight uh, for AIWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section uh, E section meeting on uh, October 20th. Tonight we have uh, a distinguished lecture uh, speaker and a great topic, exciting uh, presentation. It's, uh, it's like a, just like one of the attendees mentioned, it's a movie, movie-like uh, experience. So uh, please enjoy it. So before that, we have a few uh, logistics to go through, uh, just very quick. And at the same time, we wait for more people to sign in. Uh, so this is what we'll do. Okay, so this is our uh, tonight's uh, uh, speaker and the topic, uh, Dr. David Levy as, uh, uh, as our main speaker lecture. And uh, just to give a note to tonight uh, is the uh, 2000, uh, 180th uh, lecture uh, he made uh, since uh, his first lecture in the 1960s. Oh, sorry. Let's do this. So um, thanks a lot to AIW headquarters. They supported this uh, very nice Zoom platform and they are very supportive to uh, our events and activities. And this event was made aware to uh, the, uh, not only the section chair, but also the executive director, uh, Mr. David Dumbacher. Unfortunately, he is uh, on a trip, international trip for AWA business, uh, but he was very pleased and he will review the recording as well. And thanks a lot to uh, the speaker, Dr. Levy, uh, the recording and the pod podcast are permitted. It will be posted after the event and uh, all of you will get uh, noted for the link. And uh, if your bandwidth is, limited for internet, you are welcome to use uh, the phone, phone line uh, to, for the audio, uh, just use the internet for video. Uh, some people feel that uh, help the bandwidth issue. Uh, just a quick word for AIWA. AIWA is a uh, national nonprofit uh, organization. We are in the Western region uh, and we also have international chapters. Uh, our executive director, as mentioned, is Mr. Dan Dunbacher. Oh, um, Madhu is here. So let's uh, get him. Uh, Professor Santabella is saying hello. Uh, okay, so our president is uh, Mr. Basil Hassan, and our section chair is Dr. Jeffrey Pochel, AIW fellow, Raytheon scientist, chief scientist. Okay, AIW has more than 30,000 members across. ATA, I think it's uh, probably more than 90 now countries. And uh, we have many uh, companies as a corporate member of headquarters in Western Virginia near Washington, DC. Our vision is uh, shaping the future of aerospace. And uh, one word is that uh, it came from a merger of two distinguished organizations from early 1960s. One was founded in the, both were founded in 1920s. One was on aviation founded by the Wright brothers, the other, the other one on rocketry founded by Robert Goddard. Uh, so this is just showing adventure, showing professional society, not only is good for uh, your career, uh, opportunity, and uh, you can network, meet many experts, you know, with, uh, many people uh, like uh, our distinguished speaker tonight, and also many attendees here, uh, it's a good opportunity. So these are different level of membership. Um, the young professional should be having called early career. Uh, they are not student. Uh, they are still professional, but just after college, under 35 years old. We are running 50% off for 
highly professional uh, professional early career. So we welcome everybody. Our uh, section meeting welcome everyone. Okay, so if AI ever engages a tool, once you join, they can use online uh, tool to engage with AI more and talk to many other members. Daily launch, every day receive the inside story and the monthly Aerospace America magazine. And uh, you got great discount if you are a member of AWA for attending AWA conferences. And we have uh, AWA also published. That's one of the very main things. We are not uh, uh, like uh, uh, space awareness organization. We're actually uh, a group of scientists, uh, of professional engineers, of different people, teachers, uh, astronomers, pilots, professors, students. Okay. So we also have different level of ranks. You know, you can uh, advance to a different level. You know, for example, uh, Mr. George Whiteside, you know, Mr. Elon Musk, you know, our social fellow, and uh, our section chair, Jeff Michelle, and uh, Dr. James Woods, the, the president of Michael Cousin, and uh, Mr. Steve Isakowicz, president of Aerospace Corporation, and many, many good names. They are our AWA fellow. And Dr. Bill Gerstenmeier, who uh, recently uh, became a consult consultant of SpaceX, uh, he was formerly the uh, director of NASA Human Space Flight, is uh, now in the Los Angeles area. He's our honorary fellow. And Ms., of course, Ms. Queen Shuffler of SpaceX. And uh, we different awards, uh, Guggenheim Awards, and uh, you know, Reed Awards for, you know, you see these just ex two examples, you know, for F-35, Intel engine, and for the Honda, uh, aviation. Uh, the AWA student conference, paper conference, contest, you need to be a student membership and to apply scholarship. And Ascend is coming up next month. It's very big. You know, it's, it covers many as, aspects of space exploration from commercial space, uh, government space, in space com uh, commerce, you know, those kinds of things. Very exciting. And, uh, we have uh, many uh, national uh, Course, courses as well. You can see at the bottom, we have the former NASA administrator, Sean O'Keefe, Mr. Sean O'Keefe, uh, speaking to us in May. <clears throat> we have five major national conferences, forums for head of our national. Uh, so there's a very good opportunity to meet uh, people around the world, from around the world. And Southern California is highly blessed you know, for uh, heavily uh, aerospace heritage and uh, ongoing aerospace activities. Of course, you know the James, you know astronomy space telescope. James Space Telescope is going to be launched uh, December 18. It's made by people from North of Roman here uh, in the South Bay area, and uh, they have Aerospace Corporation. They are leading in planetary defense, asteroid exploration, and space debris mitigation. Of course, we have SpaceX, uh, you know Virgin Galactic, uh, Virgin Orbit, maybe JPL. That's just amazing. And also new company, long term space. And uh, we just got word, you know, some more new company are uh, uh, coming to this area, which is amazing. Then we'll keep doing event like uh, tonight, distinguished lecture. Uh, and uh, other event next week is like uh, networking, uh, happy hour. Uh, then we have uh, JPL uh, speaker talking about uh, space degree. And then uh, we have the famous uh, event, uh, Gary Powers event talk by the son of the very pilot uh, being shut down in the Soviet Union during the Cold War, uh, Francis Gary Powers Jr. But this one is in Las Vegas. He spoke to us last early last year. Uh, 
Uh, we also have newsletter and uh, you can see actually this cover page, the photo and the article was actually written by our uh, distinguished uh, speaker tonight, uh, Dr. Levy, he wrote the article uh, and provided this uh, uh, amazing photo for uh, Carolyn Shoemaker, who unfortunately uh, left us uh, last month. <clears throat> so this is also a great opportunity if you want to join us uh, networking, you can uh, uh, submit your articles and photos or art, those things. And also to spend outreach, podcasts, YouTube. Uh, so tonight our speaker is really, really, very special. It's um, not only we can say it's very um, knowledgeable and uh, well, I don't want to say famous in that sense, but he's very, actually very uh, modest person and uh, very, very, uh, you, you'll realize uh, it's a very, uh, uh, it's diversity, it's passion, you know, all those things. He's arguably one of the most enthusiastic and the famous amateur astronomers of our time. Although he has never taken a class in astronomy, he has written over three dozen books uh, and also has written for three astronomy magazines and has appeared on TV programs, featured on Discovery and Science channels. Among uh, uh, Davis accomplishments are 23 comet discoveries, the most famous being Shoemaker Levy 9 that collided with Jupiter in 1994, a few hundred shared asteroid discoveries, and uh, an Emmy Award for the documentary Three Minutes to Impact, five honorary doctorates in science, and a PhD which combines astronomy and English literature. Currently, he is the editor of the web magazine Skies Up. Uh, it's a monthly column, Skyward. In our local veil, uh, I think it's Arizona, voice paper. Uh, he continues to hunt for comets and uh, asteroids. He's an asteroid and comet hunter, and of course, the uh, lecture uh, worldwide. Uh, so remember this uh, lucky number 2180. That's the number of lectures he gave uh, for tonight. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Levy. So uh, without further ado, let's welcome. Uh, Ken? Ken, yes. I would like to make a quick oh, yeah, go, go ahead. introductory Actually, you, you are the intended, uh, word for, uh, for uh, David. Yes, you, you know, you... more and more, more and more, the field of astronomy seems to be dominated by people who are either looking at computers or looking at tapes of things that have happened. And obviously, I mean, profusely writing about the subject. But once in a while, you come across a person who spends his nighttime viewing through the eyepiece of a real telescope. And uh, with that, I want to mention, here is a very special person who still spends a lot of cold nights opening up the shed of his observatory and looking out deep into the sky. I'm very happy to listen to David today. Welcome, David. Thank you. <clears throat> Hung be the heavens with black, yield day, night, comets, importing changes in times and states, brandish your crystal tresses in the sky. These three lines are actually not mine. These three lines are from Shakespeare, my favorite writer, and they are not buried somewhere in his works. These lines are the opening three lines 
of one of his very first plays, Henry VI, Part One. And uh, if there are <clears throat> if there are any doubts as to whether this writer was excited about the night sky, whether he was interested in the night sky, I think these three lines could put those doubts to rest. This is, as has been told tonight, my 2,180th lecture that I've given since the spring of 1960. In those, in those, uh, in, in, that, in that lecture, I was in the sixth grade at Roslyn School, the sixth grade at Roslyn School in Montreal, Canada. I was 11 years old, and uh, our teacher, Mr. Powder, had asked us all to give lectures. And for some reason, I just decided to give a lecture about, a com about comets. And I said that comets like planets travel around the sun. And I don't think I said it quite as well as I'm saying it now, but their orbits are so far away and the distances they travel so very long that we see them only once in a great many years. At the present time, I went on to say, we know of about 900 comets. At the present time, now we know of thousands of them. But, uh, you know, I even said in those days that if you're really patient, if you are really careful, why then it is possible that you may actually discover a comet someday. But those were long before I had any real dreams of doing that myself. And I went on to say back then, all those years ago, that most can be seen only through a telescope. But the famous Halley's Comet is so big and bright that our early ancestors were frightened when they saw it. The people in the, the old Akkadian Empire saw Halley's Comet, the Mesopotamian, the ancient Israelites, um, and were frightened when they saw it. And Halley's Comet still comes into view every 76 years and I remember saying it will next be seen in 1986. You may have a chance to see this marvelous sight. And those of you who are not asleep will know that I'm a little bit behind the times because 1986 is now as far behind us as it was ahead of us back then in 1960. A couple of months after I gave that lecture, I was riding my bicycle to our graduation, our sixth grade commencement exercise at Roslyn School. And I made a left turn onto a Boulevard. And, uh, you know, I was making the turn a little bit fast and the uh, bicycle tire hit the curb and the bicycle stopped. It's cold. I unfortunately did not stop. <laughs> I went sailing over, I went sailing over the bicycle, landed on my shoulder and my arm, broke it, and uh, was just sitting there on the street feeling pretty stupid. A, another boy on his way to school came by and said, do you need some help? And I said, sure. If you could just walk me to school, and then I'll see the nurse and she will patch me up. And as I got up, there was such a pain in my right arm that I was almost screaming. 
And I said, I can't do this. And I pointed over, there was a policeman on the block next. And I said, could you please go and get that policeman and tell him that I need his help? And he went over and got the policeman. They took me to a hospital. They put a great big cast on me. And uh, that summer I stayed at home recovering from that accident. I was, I spent the time reading and uh, one of the books that I read was a book that I still have. It's called Our Son and the Worlds Around It. And I read that book. I read it a second time, read it a third time, and I'm still reading it all over and over again. And by the time I finished that book, I had made the decision that I'm going to be an astronomer. I'm going to be studying the night sky. I'm going to be enjoying the sky. That's what I want to do. Even when my father said at dinner time, David, don't make astronomy the most important thing in your life. Please don't, please don't make it the most important thing in your life. You can have your head in the clouds, but keep your feet on the ground. And I said to myself, okay, I won't make it the most important thing in my life. I'll make it the only thing in my life. Dad didn't like that very much. Years later, we talked about that, and he said, I was wrong about you. You really were and are passionate about the night sky, such as someone I've never, ever known. <clears throat> and uh, and I, I think in a way that is true. I may not be the smartest tool in the box, the sharpest tool in the toolbox by any stretch of the imagination, but I know of no one who is more passionate about seeing the night sky. On September the 1st, 1960, uh, my uncle drove by with an early bar mitzvah present. It was a telescope. It was a very interesting looking telescope. And, uh, and uh, I set it up that very night. The first thing I looked at was the, with this telescope was the planet Jupiter. And so help me, Galileo could have felt no greater thrill than I did that night, looking through the telescope at Jupiter, seeing the little, little uh, red splotches there and the four moons of Galileo. And I could swear Galileo himself could have felt no greater thrill than I did that night in my independent discovery of Galileo's four moons. One thing that I did not see that night, nor did anybody else in the world, was that there was a comet nearby Jupiter that very night. And it was swinging past Jupiter, not in an orbit around the sun, but in an orbit around Jupiter. And, uh, but it was so small and so faint, nobody saw it. And it would not be discovered for many decades into the future. And there'll be more about that a little bit later in this presentation. Anyway, <clears throat> I remember joining, not being able to join the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada because I was not yet 16 at the time. One had to be 16 years old before one could join the uh, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, at least that part of it. Fortunately, that rule is no longer existing. 
and anybody can join at any age. And I think it's a much better thing. And I got very active with them, with the organization. And I was really very uh, ambitious at the time. I wanted to become very active in uh, looking at the night sky and the various programs that they had. And I remember one day in the fall of 1965, I was uh, walking to high school for our French oral examination. And at the time, one could not, one could not graduate from high school, excuse me, without some knowledge of French. And I knew that they were, the French department was gonna ask me, what do you wanna do as a career? And I'm walking to school and I'm thinking, what the heck am I gonna wanna do as a career? I want to be an astronomer, but a lot of people wanted to be astronomers. And I was thinking in that fall, two Japanese amateur astronomers, Kaoru Ikea and Sotomu Seki, very young, just a little older than I was at the time, had discovered a comet. And comet Ikea Seki was on its way towards the sun and just moving towards the sun. And when it got to the sun near it, it would make a just a grazing past the solar photosphere and could become the comet of the century. It did become the comet of the century. And I think anybody now asking, what was the best comet of the 20th century? I think the answer, hands down, is Comet Ikeaseki. That was a real comet. That was really, really exciting. I remember down in Australia, Bart Bach got up one morning, hadn't heard about the comet, went outside and saw this huge thing covering almost the entire sky. And uh, over the course of the next 24 hours, he announced it to the entire nation of Australia. And then he was able to get all of the representatives and senators in the government of Australia to stand on top of their parliament building and observe Comet Ikeaseki under his direction that, that night. It was really exciting for him to be able to do that. And for me to be able to think all those miles and kilometers away about this bright comet approaching the sun. Suddenly, the answer hit me. What am I going to do as a career? Monsieur, je veux découvrir une comète. Sir, I want to discover a comet. That's what I would tell him That's when I question. I got to school. We were sitting in the uh, boardroom, and the professor was asking the questions, Mr. Hutchison. He looked at me, he asked me a number of questions, and I answered them, and then he asked me, what do I want to do as a career? And I sat so straight in my chair and I took a deep breath and I said, Monsieur Hutchison, je veux découvrir une comète. Mr. Hutchison, I want to discover a comet. The man looked at me, took off his glasses. He looked around at the stunned expressions of everyone. And he said, how the heck do you ever expect to make any money doing something like that? <clears throat> and 
at which point everybody just laughed and laughed. And it was, it really ended. And then he said, okay, I am going to give you full credit for your answer, if only because of all my years doing these French orals, that is the most unusual answer I have ever received when I've asked that question. But you had better find a comet for me within the next 20 years, because if you don't, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna lower your mark. And so we had a really good time about that. It turns out, Mr. Hutchison, I discovered my first comet on November the 13th, 1984, 19 years after that fall day in 1965. So I just got in under the wire and I was really very pleased about that. I started searching for comets in 1965, December the 17th. And I understand just in the introduction tonight, uh, Ken mentioned that the, um, that the, that the uh, James Webb Space Telescope is slated for launch on the 18th of December, one day after the anniversary of my start of my comet search. Well, that's kind of interesting. A day late, dollar short, but I think it's going to be fine that they, that they launch it. And I hope, please God, that it does not have any problems like the Hubble did when it was first launched back in 1990. I hope everything works fine because if it doesn't, there's ain't no way we can go up there and fix it because it's going to be very, very far away at one of the Lagrangian points and it will be impossible to, to retrieve it. So it really has to be working before it leaves and I hope it does. One of the things that I mentioned when Bud, who and Ken and I were discussing the talk, the nature of my lecture tonight was the topic. And what I wanted to do is to talk about the two discrete branches of my astronomical life. I have been discussing one of those two branches. And I'll get back to it a little bit later because a lot more happened there. But then there is the other one, which was poetry and English literature in the night sky. I honestly believe that my father would have disinherited me if I did not inherit his love of William Shakespeare. He was passionate about the bard, about William Shakespeare. He would read it, he would quote him. He would be so interested in uh, in Shakespeare and in, uh, and, in, and in everything that he had to write, he begged me as one of his children to inherit that interest. And I am sure that he would have disinherited me if I didn't follow that. So I figured I'd better get interested in I went to college, I tried to major in science and I did disastrously. Couldn't handle the physics, couldn't handle the math. I flunked out of McGill once, didn't give up, went back in, flunked out of McGill a second time. The third time, didn't go to McGill, I went to Acadia. <laughs> Excuse me, everyone. <laughs> I 
<clears throat> Excuse me, as I um, take a necessary pause here, I am still an asthmatic, and that will probably come a little later. But anyway, when I started at Acadia in 1968 now, I decided to major, I'll still in science, but in geology. And I did okay. I got my, I got C's or B minuses, but nothing terrific. And I was really very disappointed until I found out that I was getting A's and A minuses in English literature. I was fascinated with the pantheon of English literature, the pageant of English literature over the years. And of course, one of these, um, one of these interests and one of these, um, one of these things that I was trying to do <clears throat> was to see if any of the people who had written poems, written exciting things in English literature, had actually enjoyed the night sky. But I really wasn't into that yet. Astronomy was looking at the stars. Literature was studying poems, prose, and plays. I really went through my entire career at Acadia from 1968 to 1972, getting a degree, an undergraduate degree in English literature and not having any clue at all about the night sky in English literature. <clears throat> we read Macbeth. And uh, in reading Macbeth, there are a lot of wonderful passages that one can find in that play. But there's one in particular I want to share with you. It is the passage that was written <clears throat> at the point that Lady Macbeth has gone insane and then she dies and her ladies in waiting go up to Macbeth himself and they say, the queen, my Lord is dead. And you wonder what Macbeth is going to say. And you think of Shakespeare with his pen or with his word, Microsoft Word 1600 or 16, 1606 or whenever it was. <clears throat> And he's trying to write something appropriate. And he's thinking, how am I going to write something? What am I going to write? What's Macbeth going to say after his wife has just died? And there's a tap on his shoulder. And Shakespeare turns around, and it's God looking at him. And God says, well, I got this. Take a break. Get a cup of coffee. Take your asthma meds. I've got this. And what we read in the next passage is, to me, stunning. I'm going to try to quote it to you for, for memory right now. <clears throat> and I'm hoping I'm going to get it right. But what I am going to do is I'm going to add two words at the end of it. Because I think what Shakespeare is doing here is anticipating by four centuries the concept of space and time. He's anticipating general relativity by four centuries. Of course, he didn't realize it at the time, but he's writing about it. And he's writing about 
the inexorable passage of time and uh, thinking about it. And let's all think about it for a minute as I read this. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and then is heard no more. Out, out, brief candle, placed but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Signifying everything. This is the thing. This is the key. And but I read that back then at Acadia and in high school, and I made absolutely no connection to the universe. And I just thought it's a very interesting passage. <clears throat> in third year Acadia, we studied Shakespeare, took a whole course on Shakespeare. These late eclipses in the sun and moon, Shakespeare devotes two pages of the play to talking about the eclipses of 1605, the eclipse of the moon and the eclipse of the sun that were both visible in England that year. Did I jump up and down and say, this is astronomy? No, I just let it go, totally ignored me. <clears throat> did it ever make a difference? It did. After I graduated from Acadia, took a couple of years off, and then the Montreal Astronomical Club I was with decided to have an observing session in April of 1976. And uh, we were observing a meteor shower, like tonight. The Orionid meteor shower is tonight. We're not going to see much because of the full moon, but I'm going to go out a little later and see what I can find. Anyway, we were observing the Lyrid meteor shower that night, and we're all sitting back looking up at the fairly nice sky, and I suddenly thought, how many of the poets that I'm about to start studying in graduate school, after all these years, it finally hit me. How many of these poets, authors, playwrights, thought of the stars, or went out and looked at the Lyrid meteor shower in the ages past. And just like that, in a second, I decided that my master's thesis is going to connect the night sky with English literature. The very next day, and maybe this is why I thought of it that night, I had to travel to Queens to meet my prospective thesis head, Norman McKenzie. But by the time I got there, I was really all hot to trot about this, told him what I wanted to do. And he said right away, what you need to do is you need to study Gerard Manley Hopkins, a Victorian era poet who was an amateur astronomer. <laughs> he loved the night sky. And I said, Dr. Mackenzie, Hopkins is the most complicated poet in the English language. He's impossible to read. And Norman smiled and he said, yeah, that's why I want you to do him. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the, those of you 
who have studied any English literature in high school, perhaps, or in college and have studied Hopkins and all, know how hard it is to read. Dappled, dawn, drawn, his choice of words, sprung rhythm, the way he rhymes is so difficult to understand. Until you find a poem that he wrote when he was an undergraduate at college at Cambridge University. He went out one night and he saw Temple's Comet, although we don't know that. <clears throat> and a couple of weeks later, he sat down and he wrote what I think is my favorite poem. <clears throat> For a man who's written things that are impossible to follow, this is something you should hear. I am like a slip of comet scarce worth discovery. In some corner seen bridging the slender difference of two stars come out of space or suddenly engendered by heavy elements for no one knows. But when she sights the sun, she grows and sizes and spins her skirts out while her central star shakes its cocooning mists. And so she comes to fields of light. Millions of traveling rays pierce her. She hangs upon the flame-cased sun and sucks the light as full as Gideon's fleece. But then her tether calls her. She falls off. And as she dwindles, sheds her smock of gold amidst the sistering planets and then goes out into the cavernous dark. So I go out. My little sweet is done. I have drawn heat from this contagious sun. To not ungentle death, now forth I run. Norman Mackenzie gave a lecture years later in which the subject of the comet poem came up and he said, I have never encountered anyone more simply enthusiastic about a work of English literature than David was about Hopkins and his comet poem. And uh, I think he's right. I think I really love that. I made it the heart of my master's thesis. Had some difficulties with it because we tried to figure out which comet Hopkins was following. Because it couldn't have been just any comet. There were a lot of comets around the time he wrote that. And I decided to find out which one it was. Could it have been Donati's Comet in 1857? Big, bright comet. You've all seen pictures of it. Huge. Could it have been the Great Comet of, 19, of 1861 that Tennyson actually looked at while he was going past a store one night? Could see the huge comet with its head near the star Capella and its tail stretching all the way to the other end of the sky. Don't think it was that one. <clears throat> Finally, I found a fairly small untoward comet called Temple Respighi. It was discovered in 1864, and it was written about in the London Times and in the Illustrated London News. And they actually said that on the 5th of August, the comet will be visible with its head near the star Iota 
explorer guy and its tail stretching towards this nearby star, Beta, in the constellation of Taurus. I'd had it, bridging the slender difference of two stars. I went to Dr. McKenzie and I said, I've got it. This is the combat. He said, no, it isn't. And I said, it has to be. He said, because the Greek iota would be a much fainter star than the Greek beta, which would be the second of the brightest possible stars. And he said, so you don't have it yet. And I said, Dr. McKenzie, iota is a brightest star in the constellation of Auriga. Beta is the second brightest star in Taurus, a different constellation. There are more bright stars in Auriga than there are in Taurus. And it turns out that Beta Tauri is only a fraction of a magnitude dimmer than Iota Aurigae. Dr. McKenzie said, you're certain about that? And I said, yes. And he said, you got it. That's the comet. That has to be the comet. That has to be the one. And so I, I went and uh, finished the thesis. And I went on. I went on with my career. I relocated right after that to Arizona, resolving to forget about English literature and concentrate on my first love, the night sky. I thought I would stay in Arizona until I discovered my first comet. And uh, while I was there, about five years after I got my degree, this thought entered my head. Why don't you finish what you started, get your doctorate in English literature on the night sky? And I stumped my foot and erased it. I said, forget it. I'm not going to do it. I'm finished with academics. But five years later, still doing astronomy, same thing happened, discovered a comet by this time. Idea came, finish what you started. No, I'm not going to do it. Every five years, I got the thought finished what you started to get a degree in English literature at the doctoral level. Then came Schumacher 89, then came Wendy and my marriage to Wendy, who is here listening, hopefully. And, and uh, then the thought came to me again. And uh, I told Wendy about it. And she said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, no, it isn't. Because I get this idea every five years and I just stomp on it and forget about it. So excuse me while I go out and stomp on this and forget about it. And Wendy pointed, pointed at me and she said, before you go stomping, let's think about this. You're not quite as busy now as you were during the impacts of your comet with Jupiter. Maybe it is time to finish what you started. Maybe now is the time. And I listened to the words that she said, and I went along with them. It took me a while, a while to choose a university. How long a while? About 15 seconds. Uh, earlier, Wendy and I had visited the Hebrew University. We were most impressed with it. And um, I wrote to them and asked them if they'd be interested in uh, leading a uh, dissertation about English literature and the night sky. 
And there was a person there who said that he would be very interested in doing that, Lawrence, Dr. Lawrence Besserman. And uh, we started and I applied, I got accepted. It took me 10 years before I got my doctorate in <clears throat> 2010 in English literature. It was very difficult because in early 2000 and I think it was in 2006 or 2007, Wendy, that I had my stroke. Well, let's say it was 2006. Anyway, <clears throat> I, I finished the first chapter of the thesis and he wrote back, he said, this is wrong, that's wrong, no good. Finished the second chapter of the thesis, he sent back, this is wrong, that is wrong, no good. Then I had my stroke. It was a deep tissue, moderate stroke. Then the, the effects were rather subtle. Excuse me just a moment. This is what you do when you get a little bit of asthma, which comes a little later. <laughs> okay, are we ready? Are we ready to resume? Yes. <clears throat> anyway, I was, I finished the second chapter. I was not doing very well with it when I had this stroke. The effects were rather subtle, as I was trying to say. And, um, but you know, and I wasn't blithering or blathering, but um, I was having some short-term memory issues and things like that. But I had just submitted the third chapter and I was with it enough that I decided if he sends, says the same thing about the third chapter, I'm gonna give it up. About two days after the stroke, I get this message, email message from Dr. Besser and right on, Bingo, bullseye, this is what I want. The chapter happened to be the chapter of eclipse, involving eclipses. I wrote about Shakespeare's lines in King Lear. These late eclipses in the sun and moon pretend no good to us. And this is the excellent property of the world. <clears throat> Are we villains by heavenly compulsion? Hard to say. Anyway... The uh, thesis suddenly went on a lot easier then. I was able to, um, to complete it in, in early 2010. And it, I felt to me, honestly, that the university was making up rules as they go along. And I, and I, uh, I don't have any real evidence that universities do that. But I know that New Mexico State did when Brad Smith, the famous astronomer who was in charge of the Voyager mission, to Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune was getting his doctorate at New Mexico State. And he said they were making up rules every day. And I honestly had the feeling that the Hebrew University was doing the same thing. But Wendy and I decided that no matter what rule they make up, I'm gonna follow it. <clears throat> and they did this and they did that. And you have to use English paper and you have to do this and you have to do that. And so finally, I sent an email to them saying, here are the dimensions of the paper for the final copy. Are these acceptable? The next day I came into our office where I am now. And Wendy says, 
David, I think you'd better read this email. And I said, what is it? And she said, just read it. I went over to her computer and it said, congratulations, you are now a doctor. You have, we have approved your thesis and we hope that you'll be able to come in June to actually pick up your degree in person. Boy, that really made my week, my month, my year to be able to do that. It was so much fun and so special. <clears throat> Since then, I have done what I can. I've, I've, written a, I've written a book, which is actually right here. <clears throat> it's not this one, if I can find this somewhere. Anyway, it's, uh, it's not right here. <clears throat> anyway, it was my thesis. I got the thesis published. Um, and then as a second edition, there was a book, the one that I wanted to show you and can't find, that is about the doctoral thesis that deals with Shakespeare and the night sky. The master's thesis that I did at Queens that deals with Hopkins and his excitement about the night sky, also with a lot of mention of Tennyson, who I later found was fascinated with, with astronomy. He had a telescope. He used the telescope, except that whenever he had a chance, because he was a famous English poet, he could use the great telescope at Cambridge University in London with Dawes, the famous double star astronomer at the eyepiece. Apparently the man had an open invitation, which he took advantage of whenever he could. I got to meet Jonathan Tennyson a few years ago. I always try to find out when I'm studying a master, if he or she left any progeny to continue the line. Shakespeare, I understand, did not. I mean, he had children, but none of them have survived, and there's none of his line that have survived to the modern times. When I was doing Tennyson, I looked at the same thing, and I found that there is a great-great-grandson, Jonathan Tennyson, who it turns out is an astronomer, who it later turns out did research on Comet Shoemaker Levy 9, and who later turns out that I was able to visit him in my last visit to Europe which was a lot of fun to do. Anyway, <clears throat> the, the whole idea in my life is divided into two parts, actually three, if we count the most important portion, which is my marriage to Wendy. But the two parts of my career, one of them is the search for comets, the search for meteors, which I'm going to do tonight, and going out and observing the night sky, as Madhu said earlier, with my telescope and my eye looking through the telescope. I look through telescopes. I love it. I love doing it. And I cannot recommend more strongly not to learn all there is to know about astronomy, but to experience it to look up at the night sky, to see what there is. 
I know one of the things when the most recent space mission that took place with William Shatner, part of that, he was only in space for about three or four minutes. But that had a tremendous impact on the man. Just seeing the earth from space, seeing the night sky, seeing the stars, it's got to be the most really and most exciting thing to do. I have wanted to do that ever since I was a child. And even now, if NASA were to call me and say, we're going to launch a spacecraft, and I would say, where are you launching it from? From your backyard. And I said, okay. And will it be before, not too early in the morning, because I don't like to be out too early. Okay. And I don't want it to be too, too late in the afternoon when I'm taking my nap. But I do want to go up and I want to experience the night sky from space. But actually, and seriously, when I have my eye at the eyepiece, looking through the telescope, I am as close to space as I ever need to be. I don't need to cross that 100 kilometers or so from the Earth's surface to the border of space. I can see it from my backyard anytime I want. As a young man, as a very young man, I was an asthmatic, as I showed to you a few minutes ago. I was such a bad asthmatic that I had to spend a year and a half at the Jewish National Home for Asthmatic Children. While I was there, I was introduced to the local astronomy club, the Denver Astronomical Society. Would you believe I am still active with the Denver Astronomical Society? Although I was too young to join them, but I was old enough to join what they called the Denver Junior Astronomical Society. And now what I am trying to do is to get the Denver Junior Astronomical Society going again, going to, uh, to figure it out, going to get these children, these young people to go out and look at the night sky and to enjoy the sky. That's what I was doing when I was at the asthma home in Denver. That's what I am doing today and tonight when I am lecturing to you. We're coming to the end of the journey. There are two parts to it. The part where I'm looking up at the night sky. That part is the heart of my excitement about the night sky. The other part, the poetry, is the soul of my life, the soul of my interest in the night sky. And I am going to end now with a quotation, and I can hopefully we'll be able to remember it, is <clears throat> by Ralph Hudson. And in fact, Wendy, yes. if you want to come up, you can say this quote with me. You get to recite it with me indeed. <clears throat> and this is a poem <clears throat> written by Ralph Hudson, The Song of Honor. If I read the entire thing, it would take weeks and weeks. So how about if I just read the last few lines or just recite them? Because I think they say more than anything else what it means to go out and love the night sky and be as passionate about it as I am and have been. I stood and stared. The sky was lit. The sky was stars all over it. I stood.
I knew not why. Without a wish, without a will, I stood upon that silent hill and stared into the sky until my eyes were blind with stars. And still I stared into the sky. Thank you all very much. I managed to do this entire lecture without talking about Shoemaker Lady Nine, <laughs> but I'm glad I did it. We can leave that for the questions. Thank you so much. <laughs> Very delightful, uh, uh, David. You are the ultimate storyteller. And uh, I've you. known you for some years, and every time uh, you've excited uh, our curiosity. Did you know um, Dobson? Did you have a relationship with uh, uh, Dobson? Oh, you bet I did. I first <laughs> met John Dobson in San Francisco. I yes. was at the uh, Science Center there okay. at Golden Gate Park. And uh, there he was with his, one of his own handmade telescopes looking at the sun. I knew it was him right away. I got to meet him. And over the last few decades of his life we got to be pretty good friends he stayed here at the house and he's been in this room and um i knew him very well very good question did, did he was it, still did, alive during the impact of our comet with jupiter so there i got to talk a little bit about sl9 and jupiter yeah you know um uh, of all things i met him in hollywood he used to bring his scope no all kidding. over California. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we had a great chat. I recall that. But I'm sure there are many people who want to ask you questions, David. You're so gracious to to allow us to ask you some questions. Go for it, guys. I'm 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 listening in. Questions for David. If if nobody does, then I'm going to be asking too many questions. Um, um, David, well, go ahead. oh, go for it. Uh, nobody's asking. Uh, okay, so let me let me ask you this now. You know, um, I've met quite a few field astronomers, uh, um, and one time uh, I have sat in uh, um, uh, uh, shoe, uh, you know, shoemakers' lectures. And I knew yeah. him, but I, I you know, I, I did not have, um, I did not have contact with Carolyn, though I did see her several times, um, you know, and uh, I found Gene um, Shoemaker's lectures very interesting, particularly in geology and, and the breadth of his knowledge and the smoothness of his, uh, you know, uh, the way he carried uh, the, uh, the theme. Um, but anyway, um, <clears throat> So you don't want to tell us anything about uh, <laughs> about There are a couple of stories after the impacts. I knew that he had been invited to come to a National Science Teachers Association meeting, as had I. <clears throat> and I remember getting up that morning, taking the elevator down to the lobby getting out of the elevator, turning left and seeing this man sitting all by himself next to the elevator, looking awfully lonely. And that was Gene Shoemaker. 
And I just quietly went and sat down next to him, didn't say anything. He looks at me and he says, God, am I glad to see you. Saw a face that I know. And this was, uh, this was quite, quite often. I remember, <clears throat> remember one night quite recently at our most recent Adirondack astronomy retreat, I was observing when my cell phone rang and I picked it up and at the other end of the line was Carolyn Shoemaker. It had been quite a while since we had been in touch and we had a nice conversation. A couple of months later, I called her again. We talked. After that conversation, I said to Wendy, God, I wish there was a way I could speak to her more often. Wendy said, you call your brother Richard every Monday, why don't you call her as well? I began doing that, and I began doing that up until the middle of August, just before our event we did in Los Angeles, and uh, tried to call her, and there was no answer, and the phone was disconnected. A couple of days later, her daughter called me to say that Carolyn had had a minor fall, not that serious, but that she was in the hospital. The next night, she went into respiratory arrest, and she passed away the next morning. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. The friendship that we had was beyond friendship, beyond love. It was beyond family. It was something that you never could really appreciate it. <clears throat> I remember the first night I was observing with her. She taught me how to load the films into the telescope and to load the film into the film holder, which was kind of a complicated routine, as Wendy knew, because she had to learn it too eventually. Anyway, I got the hang of it after, after a few hours. And uh, Carolyn said, you know, you were going so fast, we may run out of film. Next time I came up with a new film, I said, Carolyn, this is the last film. She said, what? I said, there's no more film, we're out of film. But I have an idea. She said, what's that? I said, I brought a whole bunch. Now, these films were huge. They were like the size of dessert plates. And I brought a bunch of 35 millimeter film with me. And I cut it out in pieces and scotch tape them together. together? <laughs> yeah. okay. And we put them in the film holder and we'll just do those. How did you do And uh, Carolyn's thinking to herself, how am I going to tell this fairly nice young man that he's full of it? <coughs> and she looked at me and she said, I don't think that's going to work. And I said, oh, yeah, I stretched it a little bit. I said, yeah, I have a big piece of scissors. You just cut it. You scotch tape it. You develop it. You sort of put them together again after you take it out of the fixer and you're done. And she said, David... I have this uncomfortable feeling that I've just been had. And I said, Carolyn, I believe you have that feeling because you've just been had. And with that sentence, our friendship was assured. And we just, <clears throat> Carolyn always believed that if something isn't fun, whether it's science or anything else, it isn't worth doing. And she often remembers that the nights that she spent at Palomar were about the most fun things that she ever did. And we really made it so much fun. 
even on the Saturdays when things weren't going great, they were fun, they were enjoyable. <clears throat> and I remember one of those nights, I know that there are questions now, I just wanted to finish this. But on one of those nights, I remember looking up at the night sky, it was pretty cloudy. And Gene said, David, every time we slap a film into that camera, it costs us $4. We don't have the money to observe on a night that this cloudy. And I said, and I said, well, $4 isn't that much. And then Gene said, that's for American dollars, David, not that Canadian monopoly money you have. <laughs> anyway, but Carolyn said, you know, it is kind of clearing up a little bit. And so Gene said, let's do it. And the very next photograph we took was the first of the two discovering pictures of Comet Shoemaker in 89. And now that's the end of the very long answer to your question. I think, Are I, there think any other? I think we all want you with, uh, with uh, some um, the photographic uh, uh, plates because you'll surely find the next car. <laughs> you'll find the next discovery. But uh, um, that's a good one. Uh, any other questions for, uh, for our great uh, um, poet? Yes, I think John and Jamie had, had questions. Okay, go for John. it. John Fay, uh, Dr. Levy, uh, does your being an astronomer give you any special appreciation for Psalm 19 from, from the uh, Bible? Oh, you bet it does. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day unto day yieldeth speech. Night unto night yieldeth knowledge. Did you remember they added an extra line? So long as the sky is clear. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, that's a, you know, that's a good, good question. Thank you. Um, you know, one thing I would read to Paul when he was young is the canticle to the uh, sun and the moon uh, by um, St. Francis of Assisi. And I would read this to him often. And uh, then one day, um, he must have been three at that time, um, our, 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 our bed faced a large window and uh, it was facing eastwards and, and the moon would come up, uh, uh, David. And uh, um, so one day uh, I told him, hey, Paul, look, the moon, the half moon is coming up. And he, and he goes, these are some of his first thoughts. He goes, oh, oh. And I said, what happened? Oh, I think our moon needs a battery. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's wonderful that, you know, the night sky, the night sky is special, David. And, uh, and uh, you know, all of us, all of us treasure it, even though we don't talk about it. And um, um, I think uh, I recall a lecture uh, from, uh, um, who was it who discovered uh, the first pulsar? Uh, oh, I forget her name right now. Um, Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Yes, yes. Jocelyn, Jocelyn Bell was talking, so I had to listen to her. And she, she began a lecture by saying, don't you notice when things change in the sky? 
And it's true, very little changes is enough for us to say there's something happening. And uh, uh, even today, you know, I, I, I look at the sky uh, often and I sometimes post pictures. <clears throat> right now we have a moon coming up and Jupiter is really shining bright up there. And so I took some pictures not too long ago. Um, you know, tell us more about Tell us more about your routine. What do you do uh, uh, during, uh, uh, you know, your um, uh, your regular, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> ritual to get out and view? Well, the advantage is that I have an observatory that is about a hundred meters away from our house. <coughs> so Wendy never thinks that I'm going out to get drunk at a bar or something. You know, I'm just a hundred. <laughs> House with the telescope. Yes. And uh, what did you say, sweetie? It's more like 50 meters. Like 50 meters. Very, very close. <clears throat> and uh, it's just going out, setting up the telescope, looking and seeing what there is. Tonight it'll be looking at meteors okay. and just trying to be one with the night sky. But I think Jamie has had his hand up for some time and I'd okay. like to give him the chance to. Jamie. Uh, yes, my name is actually actually Steve. Um, my wife my wife's name is on the computer. Her name is Jamie, so I guess this is her computer I'm using. I guess, but um, my question is, uh, what is your favorite? Uh, tell us about the telescope that you use when you go out to look at the night sky. What's your favorite uh, type of device <laughs> to use, and what is your favorite object to view besides comets? Thank you so much for asking that. Um, <clears throat> my I have a number of telescopes out there, and they're all named because I believe the telescopes are people too. The first one that I've ever had, which has now been donated to the Linda Hall Library of Science in Kansas City, is named ECHO. And after the satellite that was launched the same year I got that telescope. Uh, um, the one that I use most often now is Eureka. And Eureka is a 12-inch diameter open-tubed reflector. And I just love that telescope. I love the images that it gives. And when I'm looking at something, a galaxy, a cluster, Jupiter, anything like that, I just try to get an eyeful of what it is and let the photons from the planet that have been traveling through space for hours, or the distant galaxy whose photons have been traveling through space for two or three million years or more. I just try to let them fill my eye and give me an experience. <clears throat> All the telescopes that I have are named, every one of them. And I also like to think that after an observing session and I'm inside and in bed, that the telescopes kind of have a conversation among themselves. What did David want to look at tonight? Why was he unhappy about this? Why does he like the way you show him an object better than the way I show him an object? <laughs> um, these are just little thoughts that I have. And um, which leads me to the end part of your question, which is my favorite object, which is Jupiter. And not for obvious reasons. Jupiter is my favorite because 
It is the first thing I ever looked at through a telescope. And it is something that is responsible for the most important part of my career, which was the collision of the comet with Jupiter in 1994, something that just took Keen and Carolyn and me on this ride through, through the solar system for a year and a half as all of this wonderful thing unfolded. Good question. Thanks, Dr. Levy, great discussion. Okay, who is going next? Uh, and Nahum, I'm sure you have a question. Who else do I see there? <clears throat> yeah, have you tried to? Oh, no, go ahead. That's a minute. <clears throat> you are unmuted. Well, he's, uh, we have a message here that says that uh, he's looking forward to my book. <clears throat> Excuse me, we have a book out keeping it a pretty good secret. It is the same title as the lecture title tonight, um, A Night Watchman's Journey, which is my life story, which has been published by the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. You can get it from them. <clears throat> you can also get it on the web from a store called Starizona, www.starizona.com. And you can get the book from them. And I'm also working on a, on a book for young readers right now. And in a way, this is my wife's favorite because it is based on a book I wrote when I was 10. It was, the original was not astronomical at all. It was about our pet beagle. And about a year ago, I decided to do a second edition of that book. But in this case, instead of having a real beagle, we have a magic beagle and a magic telescope to take a group of young people through the cosmos, looking at the moon, Mars, comets, the stars, galaxies, star clusters, super clusters of galaxies, and the giant voids in outer space. And uh, still trying to find a publisher for that book, but that'll be my next one if we ever. Yeah. Great. Uh, you know, I would be remiss if I did not tell our viewers to go on your Jarnock Observatory website, which has some interesting things. The one that comes to mind, uh, David, is your definition of a comet. It goes like this. A comet is like a cat. It has a tail and does exactly what it likes to do. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> that I made up on the spot. I was being interviewed on NBC News the day before the uh, impacts with the comet against Jupiter. Okay. And they asked me what comet, and I, right away, I just came up with that line. That's <laughs> my most. All that poetry does you good, yeah. Great. Yeah. Other questions for uh, David? Nahum, is, is Nahum uh, is still there? I, I haven't can seen you him. hear me? Yes, we can, Nahum. Oh, wonderful. So my question is, is there a poem that you have written about comets? <clears throat> uh, actually, no, there isn't. Oh, there uh, you go. You got I another would... assignment for you. 
<laughs> I guess you do. There isn't, I don't really consider myself the writer of poems, but I certainly am an appreciator of poems. And uh, there is one that I kind of wrote that I can share with you. And uh, let's see if I can find it. <clears throat> but this one has to be sung. And it's done in as a tribute to Leonard Cohen. It's time to go outdoors tonight. The sky is dark. Some stars are bright. The Milky Way shines overhead. Now see uh, a comet rises in the east. With them to strife, it brings us peace and calls us to a cosmic hallelujah. There, that is my <laughs> one poem. And, and you even you had like the draw, it. you even had the draw of Leonard Cohen. That's great. <laughs> a good one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, who else goes next? Uh, <clears throat> I never knew Leonard Cohen. I never knew him. But he went to the same elementary school as I did. Is he right? went to the same high school as I did. Oh, okay. He and his family founded the synagogue that I was started out in in oh, Montreal. Okay. He went to McGill, as I did. And he is buried right now at the cemetery about 100 meters away from where my mother is buried. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. You know, there's so a I wonderful... Uh, there is a wonderful uh, YouTube uh, video uh, of him uh, receiving uh, the medal uh, from uh, the King of Spain. And uh, uh, there uh, he talks about how he uh, learned about music and then uh, how um, a, a Spanish person um, taught him the guitar. And uh, uh, then he goes on to explain, oh, it, it's a very nice um, YouTube video, David. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, yeah. David, do you, know how to say, do you know how to say comet in Hebrew? I don't, but I'm sure oh both of you do. That's <laughs> one I need to learn. I would say it would be comet. I would say it would be the same as the... Hebrew, no. which is in English, is based on the Greek for long-haired star, comet. That's what I would guess it would be. So this is my input, my input is that comet in Hebrew is shavit. Oh, okay. Shavit. Shavit in Hebrew is comet. Oh. And my daughter <laughs> is named shavit. shavit. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so we have a comet all the time. <laughs> oh, that you have one all the time. And you have taught me something. Let me write this down immediately before I forget. Shavit. S H A V I T. S H A V I T. Shavit. And it's. <laughs> In, in Hebrew, it says Shavit. No, Shin Vet Shin Vet Bet Shin Vet Shin Vet Yud Tet. Yeah. My wife is helping me out here. 
Okay, uh, any other thoughts or questions? Uh, uh, you know, this is wonderful. Yeah, now who show his video? So he yeah. should uh, say a few more words. Ken, uh, uh, did you can you repeat that? Uh, oh, I mean, uh, Nahum actually uh, turned on his camera. Oh, it, I can see him now. Yes. Yeah. So maybe the, it, the, he can have uh, should get more uh, question com commands. But oh, okay. well, this way they can see each other. That's better. Okay. Any other uh, thoughts from our viewers? Uh, I can't thank uh, um, uh, Dabud. Uh, uh, anymore because uh, he has spent a nice evening with us and um, you know I like the way uh, he weaves uh, the literature uh, into uh, into astronomy and I wish more people did that uh, David I really do because you know um, sometimes in fact most times and we find the um, the uh, material uh, that is discussed in um, uh, astronomy and uh, quite drab and uh, <laughs> sometimes very sterile in the way they uh, they uh, describe things and, uh, and it's always delightful to hear it with some amount of humanities in it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> particularly for field astronomers, uh, when they go out in the cold <laughs> and do their thing. And the way you mentioned how you'd slice up 35 mm film, <laughs> you know, stack them together to make a frame. I thought that was very funny. I'd never heard that before. Um, so astronomers do funny things sometimes. <laughs> Any other questions for... Uh, for uh, uh, David before he goes back to look at the uh, uh, <laughs> the meteors in the sky. <clears throat> David, what are your thoughts about the relationship between comets and asteroids? That's a very good question that you're asking. There mm -hmm. is a relation. There is in fact a continuum in the sky among different uh, small objects in the solar system. When there's a comet, a comet is essentially something where the, that has a lot of ices. And the ices, when they get close to the sun, sublimate, become gas, it grows a tail, and that's a comet. What happens when all the ices are gone after a long time? Is there a difference between a dead comet and an asteroid? Probably not. What about an asteroid that suddenly suddenly has a coma around it and grows a tail. Does that become a comet? I believe it does. And uh, there is a continuum of objects in the night sky. And I love looking at them all. I love seeing them. <clears throat> I love the fact that one of the asteroids that, was, that is in the sky right now orbiting the sun is named after one of the greatest science libraries in the world, the Linda Hall Library. One of the most fun things we do is proposing names for some of these asteroids. And Linda Hall is one of them. And so it's just so interesting that, that, that we can do a whole bunch of things. 
there was an asteroid uh, that was, uh, I'm not sure I remember the entire story about this, but it was discovered by Lubos Kohutek and uh, it, was, it was given a particular number and it was uh, number 14,000 and something. And uh, I wrote to the director of the Minor Planet Center and I said that number happened to be Jean Valjean's prisoner number when he was oh, in prison not... at the opening. Oh gosh. At the opening of a tale <laughs> of two cities. And Brian Wait. wrote back, he said, I love this. And he Jean, got in touch Jean, with Dr. Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean was on was, Le Miserable, not in Tale of Two Cities. Oh, you <laughs> no, I believe. Jean Valjean was a prisoner. In the, but that's interesting, what you mentioned. And he did have a number, but I don't oh, remember I the number. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, Brian was thrilled with it. And he got in touch with Dr. Kohutek. And now there is this asteroid that has that number that is named for Jean Valjean. And that comet and, Kohutek is named after Dr. Kohutek, right? Yes, he was the same guy who discovered the infamous comet. That's a, that's a wonderful question, question uh, Nahum. Now, did, uh, have you been looking at the, at the very big comet that's supposed to come close to Jupiter? Uh, there's a lot of talk about it. It's, uh, it's too far away right now to right see, now. but in a decade or so, when it gets close enough, I'm going to, if I'm still alive, I am going to try to find it and take a look at it. By then, it should be bright enough for me to be able to see. And uh, it's not going to be uh, visible with a big tail in the sky, but it is going to be something yeah. that I should be able to enjoy, that I should be able to see. <clears throat> David, what are your thoughts about interstellar comets? Well, there are a couple of them now. There's one that we're still trying to figure out, and then another that actually has a cometary name. There are probably squadrillions of interstellar comets that are visiting us. I was involved, one of the comets that I discovered was in the solar system when I found it, but it is heading out among the stars now and will never be back. And that was, I think, the uh, second comet that I found in 1987, mm -hmm. is that one. Very interesting. Nahum. Oh, I'm so sorry about the uh, Les Miserables mistake. It oh, shows well, that even I, though... I just happened to read it. You know that Catherine is uh, uh, very much uh, into all of these things. Uh, so, so we keep abreast uh, our Victor Hugo stories. We enjoy that. Uh, and uh, uh, Nahum, he's not telling it to you, but he's an expert in the area of planetary defense, uh, 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 Dovi. So, so I would ask a question for Nahum, um, especially since he brought up the idea of interstellar visitors. And I've been following the work of um, Avi Lu out of... Uh, Harvard, and we've been chatting. Uh, 
<laughs> and uh, you know he's made, he's been making quite a big uh, <laughs> uh, quite a big <laughs> waves in the uh, in the field by suggesting some very interesting, intriguing to say the least, uh, ideas about uh, uh, interstellar visitors. Uh, <clears throat> what I remember, uh, Nahum, is that uh, when I sat in one of Gene Shoemaker's um, talks, he mentioned that we are uh, moving extremely fast through through the through the our Milky Way galaxy, you know, um, in revolution, and once in a while, we would intercept clouds of materials that that can cause a shower of uh, interstellar materials, uh, including objects. It, have you uh, heard more about that, uh, David? Yes, I have. Um, uh, the galaxy rotates in 225 million years, turns around on its axis. And uh, the Earth itself is part of that motion. <clears throat> but as it rotates, different parts of the galaxy interrupt the motion of the Earth. We're in a fairly peaceful time. But every little while, we get into one of the more populated arms of the galaxy that um, might interfere with us and might bring us some, some things that might ne not necessarily collide with us, but uh, things that could, Come could get close. We might yeah. intercept a cluster of interstellar comets someday that might brighten the sky for uh, for several decades or several years. Yeah. Uh, also, we have the fact that in about three billion years from now, and I intend to be alive then, and so are you. Uh, the Andromeda <laughs> Galaxy, and, and this is this is a pretty well known fact. The Andromeda Galaxy is going there, to yeah. collide with us, yes. and. Uh, um, and it's going to have a tremendous impact. Uh, our galaxy will join, will merge with the Andromeda galaxy, become a giant elliptical galaxy. The, our solar system will go shooting across the, the near the center of that for during at some point during the collision process. But it's happening. It's actually started the gravitational pull of our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy are bringing the two of them together as we speak. Yes, yes. Excellent. Uh, any other thoughts uh, from any of our viewers? Uh, Ken, Ken has his microphone uh, on. Ken, did you want to ask some? Oh, uh, if you ask me, uh, actually immediately have two questions. One is, uh, um, why is uh, Shoemaker leaving nine? So does that mean they have 10, 11, uh, 15, or, or why is nine, not eight? Then uh, the second, second oh. question is, uh, you know, the, the Shoemaker leaving, uh, you know, comment break up. Uh, did all the, the, uh, the parts hit uh, Jupiter or did some part actually not hitting, uh, didn't hit the Jupiter? Hit Jupiter? Uh, that's a good, that's a, those are very good questions. The first one is that, Shoemaker Levy 9 is a tribute to an older way of naming comets. It used to be that if we found a comet that was periodical, 
that it would go around the sun in periods of less than 200 years, it would be given a periodic designation. And if the same discoverer or discoverers found more than one, it would be given a number. So that if we found as a team two of these periodic comets, the second one would be Shoemaker-Levy 2. SL9 was the uh, ninth, <coughs> sorry, the ninth periodical comet that our team discovered. In addition to that, we found a whole nother <coughs> number of comets that, that are not numbered. Those are not considered periodic comets. They come by, they go out to the edge of the uh, solar system to the Oort cloud or the Kuiper belt and then come back in hundreds or thousands of years, and those are not given numbers. That naming system is no longer used. So it is illegal for me to even talk about it, and I'm probably going to get fined by the Arizona State Legislature for even talking about it. <laughs> well, the other no, part of your question had to do with, um, could, you, could you repeat me just a hint oh, on the other half? The, the comment break, uh, broke up, right? Uh, so we saw the picture, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the parts hitting uh, Jupiter, but um, is any part missing? You know, when they broke up different part, any part missing or all the parts uh, hit Jupiter at the time? I am certain that some of the smaller things at the edge of the trails did not collide with Jupiter. All of the 21 major fragments that the comet divided into on July the 7th, 1992, collided with Jupiter, every one of them. But some of the specks of dust that go way, way out into the dust train probably missed. And in fact, in August of 1994, <clears throat> I was part of a team with another telescope that was looking for some of those small impacts that might've taken place, whether skunked us so we weren't able to see any, but it's possible that some of the tiny parts did not collide. But essentially, the big pieces all did. Good question. Very good question. Both yeah, questions, I, I Yeah, I kind of asked, I've been thinking about it because uh, my home is here. You know, this, if it's something, if the asteroid, he's an expert and leader in this uh, asteroid defense, planetary defense. So this actually poses uh, some kind of risk, you know, right? My home is something broke up and uh, you have to decide which one hit. <laughs> You know, has higher uh, risk, you know, uh, then you have to mitigate the risk and uh, defend those that will have more imminent uh, danger, threats. If Chief Shoemaker were alive, he would say it's a question of risk versus consequence. Exactly. The chances that we're going to get clobbered by a comet or an asteroid are almost negligible. They are less the chances of you or me dying in an airplane crash tomorrow. However, the consequence, if an object does hit us, or even as explodes as an airburst, are enormous. One of the questions that were asked, well, it was asked of Carolyn Shoemaker by a children's program was what if the pieces of Shoemaker Levy 9 collided with the Earth? Carolyn looked at the camera and said, we would all die. The interviewer said, Carolyn, this is a children's program. We have to be a little more careful with our answer. 
And she asked the question again, and Carolyn said, we would be very uncomfortable. <laughs> it would be a very and bad day, would, that's right. <laughs> it would be a very bad day. Uh, but I think, I think that from my perspective, um, humanity has to thank Gene and you, David, because the discovery of that comet is considered a wake-up call for us to attempt to do something about future objects that could collide with us. And we have the technology to attempt to deflect or destroy them. I think that Schumacher, Schumacher Levy 9 example is one of those cases that is brought up. Yeah, it could happen to us and we better think about it before emergency. Very true. Good comment. In fact, it's not that it could happen, it will happen to us That's right. someday. Yeah, it's a question of when. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's, exactly. It's a vivid example because you know uh, if you look at the uh, uh, the the you know the thing the, the, on Earth, but people don't see the the visual effect. But when you see uh, Shoemaker Levy not hitting Jupiter, <laughs> they see that you know the, the direct visual effect. You know, so that's uh, exactly as Mahmoud said, wake up call. You know, you, you yeah, look at craters, so they don't feel that much, but when they see something explode and the hit something, that's whether they say, wait a second, this is very serious. You, know? you look at great crater and it's static, don't, people don't feel that much. You know? Very true. So, yeah, this, this is a very asked, big event in our lifetime. A question? Did somebody have a question? Testify before Congress about the possibility of being hit by a comet or an asteroid. And I was not able to <clears throat> because it coincided with my mom's 80th birthday party that was so many years ago now. <clears throat> I'm so sorry I didn't take them up on that opportunity. I certainly should have. They actually could have commanded me to do that <clears throat> as they are with somebody else right now. Other subject, but um, I kind of wish they had because I wish I had gone there. And if, it, if the opportunity comes again, I will take advantage of it instantly. You can rest assured <laughs> Uh, you know, I was reminded, do, do uh, know, you know Philip, Philip Lubin, because I know both of you talked at the ISU meeting. Uh, uh, David, did you, do you know Philip Lubin at UCSD? Yes. You do, okay. Uh, so, yes, I do not know, I know of him. Okay, so Philip, Philip told me a very interesting story. Uh, he said that uh, uh, he, was, he was presenting um, he, he was presenting uh, at a conference on planetary difference. <laughs> and he got a lot of attention on that day because the day before Chelyabinsk happened. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, you don't need uh, too, much, um, uh, too much marketing skills if you have nature backing you up. <laughs> but, uh, well, it's... <clears throat> Yeah, it is it's true, very good. There was a conference on impacts at the University of Arizona in February of 1993, just three weeks before 
we discovered Shoemaker and Levy 9. Mm -hmm. Interesting. In the year and a half, the impacts. But that was really very, uh, that was all that, and that involved Gene and Carolyn Shoemaker. Yeah, you know, at the, at the meeting that we had all of you together, uh, David, um, there was a professor uh, from the University of Arizona, uh, a literature professor. Do you know him? Do you know Christopher Kokinos? Oh, yes. You do? Oh, okay. yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I wish I were more active with you, you know, with my own university here, but... Um, with the COVID and everything, uh, everyone I meet and know is usually over Zoom or WebEx or something. So uh, I look forward to uh, doing things in person again, including someday coming to LA or Las Vegas and doing an in-person talk. Oh, we're happy to arrange. Uh, you and the Wendy, uh, we're ready. Maybe uh, look, at, look for, uh, because the venue issue uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, maybe early next year, we can uh, do something after the pandemic get a little yeah, ease. I would love to do that. Yeah, yeah. And then really... I can show that. <laughs> yeah, and Madhu, I, I want to mention, you mentioned Tonkuska, right? But, you know, compare Tonkuska and the Shoebreaker Levy 9 impact, I think Tonkuska has kind of a lot of guesses. You know, some people, because there are a lot of theory, that people think different kind of theory. So it's kind of, it's very huge uh, factor, as you said, but, at the same time, I, I think there is still quite a lot of you know, discussion what exactly it was, how it happened. You know, remember last time we discussed there's some recent paper talking about it, it's, it's something gliding through the uh, atmosphere and causing some expression or something like that. Um, but Schumacher living is, is more direct, visually direct, you know, that uh, explaining why you know, it is a big issue. And, when you talk about Tonkuska, these days people say it's a comet, asteroid, and some even talking about, you know, it's a uh, you know, flying saucer explosion. So it's <laughs> kind of, it's, it's uh, yeah, but it, it, it's still, it's, it's very vivid on Earth, but at the same time, it, it's uh, the truth make a living night in our lifetime. You know, uh, Tonkuska, 1908, it's been a while. Uh, this uh, this uh, is really in our lifetime, the, the best example. Yeah, <laughs> and then talking about it, yeah, I do have a, then like you, uh, Dr. Lee, you mentioned about the poetry and uh, the astronomer. I think uh, great astronomers generally probably have the, the heart of the poet. Uh, this, um, the Halley's Comet, the uh, discoverer of the Halley's Comet, this is, was she a poet as well, or he was much into, I think he was a little bit after Shakespeare. Halley, Halley was uh, in, Halley? The Royal, in the Royal Society. He was uh, he, he was not the president at any time, but but he was definitely um, uh, a, a scientist um, with a lot of uh, a, a lot of publications to his credit. He yeah. was, uh, but also, of course, he did not discover the comet that bears his name, but he did something even more important than discover it. He calculated its orbit, orbit. and he realized that the comets that appeared every 75 or 76 years, years that he predicted were the same comet. And when the thing, and he went ahead and he predicted it would come back again in 1758. And when it did, it was named after him. And science, uh, the Science Digest, I think, considers it the most important comet ever, ever looked at. And I think they're right. 
And that there is a lot of discussion about him uh, pushing Newton to do some of the things that Newton did. And they were all contemporaries, Newton, um, Halley, and uh, Hooke. Uh, Hooke was uh, the president of the Royal Society. Am I right to think that, uh, David? And there were a lot of- I believe so. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of quarrels between- Yes, that Newton and Halley were very good friends. And it was <laughs> but, hard to be a friend. It was difficult to be a friend with anybody. But he was a friend. <laughs> yeah, and but, but did any of them write poetry? Are they any of them good at uh, literature or anything? Those guys, those scientists? I, but I don't think so. But I wouldn't be surprised if they all appreciated poetry. I mean, uh, that, it's sometimes harder to appreciate it than it is to write it, but um, but it is a very important thing to do. And just as uh, as I look out at the night sky and appreciate a poem, they both cause me to look at a bigger picture, to take my eyes away from the news of the day and the the minor things that are happening outside and to look up at the sky and to see the big picture. Yeah. And uh, that is, I think, the heart and soul of what I wanted to discuss with you tonight. Well, I also, think... I uh, think sorry, uh, a, a quick question. So when you, with your uh, study and experience with Shakespeare, do you think he, he is uh, uh, in love or astronomy or he's some person who actually appreciates astronomy very much, Shakespeare? Oh, he loved astronomy. I don't think there was any doubt in it, in my mind that he loved astronomy. From the time that he was seven years old, uh, there was a supernova in Cassiopeia, and I, I'm pretty certain his father took him outside to the north-facing yard of his home to show him this great star in the sky. And five years later, he was old enough to see the Great Comet of 1577. And in fact, in my thesis, I have a little table that talks about the references to comets in the writings of Shakespeare and to specific comets that appeared at the time that he wrote those particular plays. So it was pretty obvious to me in these days before the telescope that Shakespeare really did enjoy looking up at the night sky and putting them into his plays. I counted during the work on my dissertation over 200 references to the night sky in the works of Shakespeare alone. Excellent. Yep. Fascinating. Uh, we, could, we could listen to you all night, uh, David, but uh, I guess we have to wind up sometime or the other. We thank you, we thank Wendy yeah. to, for letting you do this. Uh, for so for so long, and uh, um, yeah, if there are no more questions, uh, uh, Ken, we can wind up. Uh, am I right to think that? Uh, oh, yeah, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, yes, you're right. Yeah, thank uh, you so much, uh, Professor Sankavano, Dr. Levy, and Dr. Nahum Merame. Thank you so much. Thank you for organizing that. That is a fascinating talk, and I'm looking forward to seeing David in LA. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. We, we want you all here. We want yes. you here. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, uh, thank you all. And uh, Ken, uh, please close. Uh, okay. Uh,
the event. Yeah, okay, so this concludes tonight's uh, uh, event. Uh, so thank you very much, everybody, for joining us tonight. Uh, the recording link will be emailed to everyone. So look for uh, look uh, look forward uh, to that and uh, uh, have a good night. Uh, enjoy the week. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Madhu, and especially David. Bye bye. Thank you. Good night. Good night.